thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, um, I'm just going to tell you, this is a particularly difficult episode for me because I'm going to describe something that I see in the Christian legal and policy community that I think is civilization-destroying, and some of the major players Christians rely on are taking us in what I think is a very wrong direction. And that's a strong statement. So let me make my case today as you listen in. But, but let me tell you why I feel compelled to expose some things, talk about some things that are, that are going on. And by analogy, we, we've all heard the statement, friends don't let friends drive drunk. And what I'm doing today is saying friends also shouldn't let their friends drive with friends who they think are drunk. I mean, if you know somebody's drunk and your friend's getting ready to get in the car with them, protect your friend, right? Try to keep the driver from driving. But if you can't, at least don't let your friend get in the car with him. And when I see some organizations you may respect and admire headed in what I think is a very dangerous direction, I I can't be silent. I I can't let you get in the legal and policy car they're driving without you knowing that at least I think you may be driven over a cliff if something doesn't change. And I hope by today's podcast, something begins to change, even if I become a hated figure as a result of it. It's okay. That's how strongly I feel about what I'm talking about and and what makes it difficult, really even painful, is I'm going to put my observations in the context of something I'm working on right now that involves Christian organizations I've counted as friends and allies over the year, and I, and I still do on some things. And I, I don't suspect they'll see it that way anymore, but, but we divide, and we divide sharply over what I and a few other Christian legal scholars consider the civilization-defining import of the United States Supreme Court's decision in 2015, almost nine years ago, known as Obergefell versus Hodges. And I can't in good conscience continue to be silent, not when I have listeners who I think may be being led in some directions I think are terribly unsound. The decision I mentioned, in in case you don't know it by name, was the one in which the United States Supreme Court held that state marriage license laws could no longer be restricted to men and women as husbands and wife. Marriage licenses had to be issued to couples regardless of sex. Now, in the vernacular in the legal policy world, this is referred to as marriage equality because the relationship between two men who get a marriage license is now deemed equal to the relationship of a man and a woman who get a marriage license. That's marriage equality. The two are equal. You want to hang on to that term, marriage equality. But before I get to the particular issue that sharply divides me from some of my friends, and I would say actually pretty much every state and national policy organization I know, that's 
probably 50 of them. Let me, let me read you the transcript of remarks given by an attorney. I know, Alliance Defending Freedom Respects, and were actually given at one of its events within a year of the Supreme Court's decision. And, and here's what this esteemed, respected lawyer said. Quote, Because marriage equality now is the veritable catchphrase of American family law politics. That's what I was just saying, right? Marriage equality. We should be clear about this from the outset. Same-sex marriage is not adding new participants or designs into marriage as if marriage were this flexible relationship susceptible to assimilating new and innovative configurations within it. Its redefinition is to destroy it. Let me just read part of that again. Because marriage equality now is the veritable catchphrase of American family law politics. Family law would encompass child support, alimony, parental rights, divorce, all those things. That's that's a new catchphrase for all of family law. We should be clear from the outset. Same-sex marriage is not adding new participants as if this was some kind of reflexible relationship, but it's a redefinition that destroys it. And, and here's an example that may be helpful. Let me, let's say that at one time only white people could marry, uh, allowing black people to marry. Say, well, you know, black people can get a marriage license too. Well, that could be assimilated, as he was saying, into marriage defined as a man and a woman because you know, the black couple could be a man and a woman, right? This wasn't a reconfiguration or destruction of the essence or the principle or the foundational concept of what marriage was. And, and then we could have said, well, you know, actually, we'll allow mixed-race marriages. And that could be assimilated into marriage defined as a man and a woman without having to redefine or reconfigure marriage. But if two men must now be considered married, well, this kind of, quote, marital relationship, that's a whole new thing. You see, that's what he's saying. It'd be like saying triangles can now be made of four lines. And if somebody were to declare that, if the Supreme Court were to say that, yes, uh, when you teach geometry now, you must teach that triangles can include three or four lines. Do you think you have anything known as a triangle that's left? No. Triangles would be abolished in geometry as we've known them. And that's... Why the lawyer said this very next thing in his next sentence. Marriage can be either acknowledged or abolished because it's a real thing. It's like you can really have triangles or you cannot have them, but you can't redefine them. Redefinition of marriage, he says, is the latter. It's the abolition of marriage as we've known it. Then this esteemed lawyer expands on the point. Quote, this is why the court's claim in the Obergefell decision that it was remediating the unjust exclusion of same-sex couples from one of civilization's oldest institutions is such hooey. For the obvious fact is that same-sex couples, even after Obergefell, continue to be excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions because that institution is a union of husband and wife. 
the court could do nothing in order to remediate that alleged loss. And here he explains why, what the court did. Quote, what the court did instead, instead of remediating by saying, oh, we've excluded blacks from getting marriage licenses or mixed-race couples from getting marriage licenses. He said, no, instead what they did was abolish that old institution from the law and then stipulate a new entity in its place while absconding with the old name. Now, let me provide an analogy. There's a lot of stuff packed in this sentence. It's like saying we're now going to call geometric shapes with three or four lines a triangle. That's what he means by the court stipulating a new entity. It's the same as the court saying four-sided figures are now triangles in place of the old understanding that it was just uh, three-sided figures. And that's what he means when he also said the court absconded with the old word, marriage, by applying it to something that had never been marriage, that it had previously been the crime of sodomy. You see? So again, by analogy, it's like applying the word triangle to a figure with four sides. That would be absconding with the old word triangle and applying it to something that's just not a triangle. So you see what happened. A fast one was pulled on everybody because the court applied the old word that we're familiar with, marriage, to the new thing. And we blindly continued to think we still had the old thing. We don't. It's impossible. The lawyer continued in his remarks. Same-sex couples wanted an equivalent symbol of public approbation for their non-marital relationships that has been enjoyed through time by marital relationships, and the court obliged them. In other words... Marriage is no longer a real, natural, organic, written in the sexual dimorphism of man and woman kind of thing. No, 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 no. It's just a mere word that symbolizes public approval of certain kinds of relationships. It's a government-created, recognized, and approved relationship, and we're now going to call it marriage, even though it was previously known as sodomy. But the ultimate kicker is what this esteemed lawyer next said. Now listen to this. And because the court proceeded in terms of equality between same-sex pairs and husband-wife unions, that meant there would not be two institutions, but only one. So now we all get to share in that one new union, that one new legal status. And this is important. The opportunity to participate in the venerable legal institution of marriage defined exclusively, exhaustively, right, in terms of male and female. He says, well, that's now been denied to everyone as marriage has now been excised from the law in our country. It just doesn't exist anymore. The way we look at statutes and their definition of marriage for the purposes of issuing licenses. The lawyer continues, The institution that now presents and available to us is gay marriage for everyone. 
I mean, think about it. You don't go down to the courthouse and say, I would like the male-female union marriage license, or I would like the uh, any two people marriage license, or the man-man marriage license, or the woman-woman marriage license. There's only one legal recognized, quote, marital institution anymore. And by law, as a matter of law, for everyone who lives under the law, which is all of us, it is now gay marriage. That's all that exists. Now, let's just use a little logic, maybe a little biblical logic, to extend this new principle for understanding what a marital relationship is. Let's, let's now begin to extend it, because remember he talked about family law. Well, here we go. Because we must still live in God's world, we can't escape it. We can't pretend to think that what he formed through the marital relationship, namely the parent-child relationship, can be severed from this new understanding of the marital relationship and remain what it once was. It's impossible. The two, the marital relationship and the parent-child relationship, must rise or fall together. The world can't be cordoned off, compartmentalized into separate, distinct, never-intersecting relational spheres because that's just not how God made the world to work. But that seems to be what the Christian legal and policy communities think can happen, at least as best I can tell from talking to them and urging them to work with us on our challenge to Obergefell. And I'll get to that in a minute. But there are no takers, not one, not after multiple conversations, no interest. But the gay rights legal community sure understands the indissoluble interconnection between the definition of marriage and the understanding of the parent-child relationship. In fact, in 2016, uh, a matter of months following the Obergefell decision from the summer before, there was an article published in the Harvard Law Review. You may have heard of Harvard, a highly respected, esteemed law school, right? It was written by Douglas Najame, who was then a law professor at UCLA. And here's what it's titled. Marriage Equality, there's the buzzword, right? And the New Parenthood, that's the title. In the executive summary, he makes this statement. The new model of parenthood, which I'll describe in a minute, but the new model of parenthood is embedded in marriage equality and is extended through a family law regime in which same-sex couples can marry. So you see, he understands the parent-child relationship is, quote, embedded in. It's inextricably intertwined in our understanding of marriage. And as best I can tell from my work on parental rights legislation, not one state or national policy organization seems to understand what this gay lawyer understands, that there is a connection between the two and you can't sever them because that's not how God made the world to work. And then Professor Najim explains what he meant by the new model in, in these words in the second paragraph of the article. You didn't have to read the whole thing. You just had to read the first page to get where he's going. It wasn't complicated. This article shows how marriage equality enables significant shifts in the law's understanding of parenthood. Now, that should scare you to death. That model of parenthood 
is premised on intentional and functional. So we went to the sperm bank and we picked out uh, the proper daddy or we picked out the the, the proper egg. Uh, or if you are a husband and wife, we intentionally tried to have a baby. It's based on intentionality, nothing not love, not covenantal bonds, none of that, and functional. Well, yeah, and we take the kid to ballet lessons and swim practice, and we take them to school, and we help them with their homework. So that makes me now a parent. He says, so that model of parenthood is premised on intentional and functional, the new model, rather than, look what it's replacing, biological and gendered concepts of parentage. In this way, Rather than affirming traditional norms governing the family, marriage equality, and the model of parenthood it signals are transforming parenthood, marriage, and the relationship between them for all families. Let me read that to you again. The new model says, Rather than affirming traditional norms governing the family, marriage equality, and the model of parenthood it signals are transforming parenthood, marriage, and the relationship between them for all families. That's your family. The law, as I said the other day, is organizing itself around the new archetypes, and as it does, like a funnel, like a like the, the drain going down in your toilet, you're being sucked into it. Whether you know it or not, you are every day that passes and we do nothing. Now, let me drill down a bit further by returning to what this Christian lawyer said to those that were gathered together by ADF. Here's what he said, quote, because traditional marriage law addressed the procreative union of husband and wife, that's the traditional marriage law, that's the common law. Marriage status has always been tangled up in state domestic relations statutory proceedings that treat children and paternity and legitimacy and birth certificates and support and custody and so on and so on. In other words, it's all a tangled, embedded, inextricably intertwined thing of family law under the state domestic relations laws common law or statutory. Now, let me just note this for another point I'm going to make later. You see, domestic relations was always a state matter, not a federal matter. Keep that in mind. But let me continue with what this lawyer next said. But with the arrival of redefined marriage, courts are now overhauling those domestic relation standards to transfer their procreation-based policies to persons in relationships that have nothing to do with procreation. Sterility is now the new model. Fruitlessness is now the new model. Children are accoutrements, additions, add-ons, like potato head ears or eyes. He goes on and says this, And this, this transfer of the old understanding to the new, is chiefly accomplished through the court's application of gender-neutral construction methods to nullify the legislative meaning of these statutes. 
And that's exactly what happened in Tennessee. And I know because I represented over half of Tennessee's legislature a few years ago in a case in which the judicial branch had to construe the meaning of this provision in our law. Now, listen, listen to this. Here's what the statute says. A child born to a married woman as a result of artificial insemination with the consent of the married woman's husband is deemed to be the legitimate child of the husband and wife. Now, with the help of our former attorney general, our appellate court here agreed that this statute, referring to a married woman and a married woman's husband and a husband and wife, this statute applied to a woman who went with her lesbian lover to pick out a father from a sperm bank And after they had the baby, and after there was the impregnation, the two women decided to get married. Now, I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Who was the married woman's husband in that relationship? What husband was going to have a legitimate relationship with that child? Well, obviously there wasn't one. But did that stop the court from saying the statute didn't apply? To married lesbians? No, 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 no. The court said it must conform the law to Obergefell or the law would be unconstitutional and we can't have that. So uh, it just held that the words married woman's husband could be read in a gender neutral way to include the mother's spouse. We'll just rewrite the laws of the statute from woman's husband to spouse. And she held the child would not be deemed the legitimate child of the husband and wife, but of the wife and the wife. You see what's taking place right under our noses. We're not paying attention. Now tell me, how can you expect to hold on to the kind of rights a biblical cosmology said in here in the biological kinship of a husband and wife and child when the adults, as the Christian lawyer said, are now understood androgynously And the child's existence depends on a third-party interloper into the relationship between the other two adults because they can't procreate. But let's go further. Let's go back to the proposition that we have gay marriage for everyone now. How could that be true except logically speaking, right? Well, (laughs) here's one way it becomes true. In most states, the only way to have a marital relationship that the state will recognize as lawful is through a government license. And in every state of the union, that law says, or it's being interpreted to say, that marriage is no longer defined in terms of the sex of the parties. It's any two people is now the definition of marriage. So, as the Christian lawyer said, we only have one kind of marriage now for everyone. That's gay marriage. But it's more than that. Think about it. Men and women no longer are considered as having a right from God to marry as part of the creational law or ordinance of God. No, that right now comes from the government and from marriage. The government confers upon you the opportunity to be married. So to have a lawful marriage, at least in the eyes of the civil government and the courts of law, A man and a woman must bow down to and accept their state's new understanding of marriage. Because remember, the old one's gone. And, and here's what's really sad to me, the minister must sign the state's license by which he affirms, 
and in Tennessee he actually swears, it's attested to, that he has solemnized the only kind, the only kind, did I say the only kind of marital relationship the state has? The minister has just signed off on agreeing to the state's definition of gay marriage because that's the only kind we now have. Friends, I'm just telling you, all I can see here is ignorance among pastors or apostasy. And I've spoken to some big-name pastors who show up for big Christian political events, and I've asked them about signing these marriage licenses, and all they can see is as a man and woman in front of me, but they can't get through their heads that the law says that's irrelevant. By definition, it didn't have to be a man and a woman. You're accepting the state law's definition of, of what a marital relationship is, and you can't put your own subjective personal understanding of marriage onto the law and pretend that the law is different. We only have one kind of marriage, and you, pastor, are agreeing to it, and they all look at me like I came from Mars. Ah. Anyway, in Tennessee, we're trying to fight back against this redefinition of marriage and a federal judiciary that thinks it's God enough to redefine it. And how we're doing it is by enacting a law that recognizes the right of a man and a woman to marry without a government license. Why would we have a law that would recognize that? Because their right didn't come from the government. It was given by God to man and woman. And, and so the way in this law we're passing it that the government recognizes this creational reality and recognizes the exercise of this God-given right of man and woman is that the law authorizes the county clerk to receive for filing an affidavit by which the man and a woman declare to the government that they are married. It's like a deed saying, I bought the house. Everybody needs to know I bought this house. This is the man and woman exchanging vows and then going to the courthouse and filing an affidavit that's much like a deed saying, hey, we are married. Everybody you need to know we're married. The marriage isn't created by the government license, but by the nature of the vows the man and woman express to them. They create the marriage. And so it lays down the principle again that not all relationships are created by the government. And here's one that's not created by the government, and it's sanctioned, in essence, by the creational norms that God has established. And you would think Christian organizations would support that, but not so far. And this is where I confess, I, I, I'm just at a total loss. Organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom and Family Research Council, even the group I'm associated with, Family Policy Alliance, have at least so far affirmatively refused to get involved here in any way. Even after multiple conversations over the years since Obergefell and giving them the kind of information that I'm giving you and from the lawyers that I've been working with, no dice, don't want to be involved. Now, I get that we all have our own agendas. I do understand that. But I have to ask, what agenda could be more important to civilization and culture the way God intended it to work then through his definition of the marital relationship and his definition of the parent-child relationship. And how can we think that letting this go unchallenged now for almost nine years when there's a way to do it is good in God's sight? 
I mean, is there no time or money among the thousands of hours and millions of dollars being spent even for consideration of this civilization-defining issue and what we could do about it? I mean, none? I, I don't get it, my friends. And what's particularly ironic to me is that all three of these organizations are supporting legislation that acknowledges the rights of parents are protected by the U.S. Constitution. And you might think that sounds great, but let's think about it. Rights are protected. Parent-child rights are protected by the U.S. Constitution. Now, I'd ask you, where is the parent clause or the parental relationship power in the Constitution? Go look the word mother, father, husband, wife, child, children, parent, parent-child. Where, where, where is that word in the Constitution so that it would be governed by the U.S. Constitution? Well, it's nowhere. So where's the old federal involvement in this relationship when the Ninth Amendment that we forget about, I've written a whole book on it, says that all common law matters, which includes all of family law, are left to the states. And the Tenth Amendment says jurisdiction of those matters is left to the states and the people. How then does the U.S. Constitution apply? I mean, we've got cases throughout our history from the early 1800s to the early 1900s that says that, that matters of common law were left to the states. So where is the U.S. Constitution involved in this? Well, the legislation these national leaders support cite U.S. Supreme Court decisions for the proposition that parental rights are fundamental. Well, I'm glad the U.S. Supreme Court thinks that. But the most recent decisions they cite fold those parental rights into and put them under the 14th Amendment's due process clause. That's what we call substantive due process. Clarence Thomas and some folks are trying to get rid of it, but not us. We're, we're just wanting to steamroll right on ahead and keep this lousy doctrine that gave us abortion and gay marriage. So, so how is it good that, that the same clause that abolished marriage and gave us gay marriage in return, uh, relying on that's good? It doesn't seem good to me. So these legal and policy organizations are urging states to concede that parental rights in the states are protected by a U.S. Constitution that now has an Obergefell-informed understanding of the marital relationship. And I confess, I just don't get that. But that's not the worst of it. It gets worse. Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says this, quote, Congress shall have the power by appropriate legislation to enforce the provisions of this article. And I have to ask myself, why would any state want to entangle itself in that mess? I don't know. I can't fathom it. And my attempts to explain this to ADF my organization, Family Policy Alliance, well, so far, so far, they've fallen on deaf ears. I mean, I keep praying for them and yapping at them, fussing with them that you, you ought not do this, but so far, nothing. And friends, I'm just saying to you today, as a matter of conscience before God, I, I had to say something. Until states pass a law that allow the Supreme Court to limit Obergefell strictly to licensed marriages and nothing else, so it can't spread to the parent-child relationship, or until the states enact a law that would allow the court to overturn Obergefell, it's still good constitutional precedent. 
Even the Dobbs decision that overturned abortion said Obergefell was still precedent. And I guarantee you then the James of the gay rights legal community who understand what Obergefell's marriage equality means for parentage, they're surely going to argue for their understanding of what a child is and what the adult relationship to that child should be using Obergefell. The point the Christian lawyer I quoted earlier was trying to make so valiantly is the parent-child relationship can no longer be grounded in male-female procreation and there still be equality between male-male marriages and male-female marriages. So, if you want to risk supporting bills in your legislature, they're advancing the idea that parental rights are protected by the U.S. Constitution's Obergefell-informed 14th Amendment and the power of Congress to enforce it. Well, don't say your friend David Fowler didn't tell you that someday you may find you were driven over a civilizational cliff by your friends. Parental rights, like marriage, need to be returned to the jurisdiction of the states, and I can't sit by idly, afraid I'll offend somebody or some of my donors, while others appear to be bolstering the jurisdiction of the federal government over those issues. I mean, I want my state to be able to say, we never passed a statute that acknowledges the federal government having any say in the parent-child relationship. And if those who disagree to me say, well, I wonder if you're still going to think that when your state does something stupid and you can't appeal to the Constitution, you know what I'm going to say? Well, shame on me and my fellow Tennesseans for electing buffoons. And since this is a state, not a federal issue, well, I'm free to move to a state that does it better than Tennessee. And I don't have to run to Washington or the Supreme Court or to Congress to try to fix it. And next week, I want to speak to this idea of seeking our help and protection our salvation, if you will, in the U.S. Constitution. So I hope you'll tune in next week. But if you find yourself agreeing that Obergefell can no longer be ignored by the church and by Christian legal and policy organizations, I hope you'll think about sharing this episode and then tune in with me again next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.